You are listening to The Mallory Report, a live radio show that ventures into the mysteries of life, as well as the hot topics of the day, either political or business. I'm excited to have everyone with us right now. This is going to be a good show. I know that because Nick Redfern is with us. Nick, how are you doing this evening? Hey, Jim. I'm doing good, thanks. Uh, apart from being uh, stuck in the apartment for a year. <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> like so most of us. <laughs> so have, have you cleaned more or is it worse than normal? Is what, sorry? Have you cleaned more? Because I, I know I've got a lot of cleaning done that I always looked at and said, ah, if I have the time. Oh, <laughs> well, I just do what i got to do, I suppose, to uh, get through, you know, like most of us. But, uh, you know, it's like uh, one of those situations where none of us have really experienced anything like this, you know, and you just got to deal with it the best you can, I suppose, for whoever you are, wherever you are, you know. So, you're here to talk about the the Rendlesham Forest Mm -hmm. UFO Conspiracy. Boy, that was a mouthful for me. A close encounter of uh, exposed as a top secret government experiment. So let's let's stop for a second before we get into the conspiracy. Let's assume, I know because that's bad, um, that somebody out there has not heard of Rendlesham at all. So let's start from the very beginning before we try to pull it back apart. Well, I mean, you know, it's one of these situations where, um, you know, it's um, the case itself, you know, is one of these classic ones where it's kind of like Roswell or the Betty and Barney Hill case, you know, it's, um, it's an incident which everybody knows about and everybody thinks it's a great case and nobody wants you know it to be other than what it's perceived as um and you know there's a lot of cases like that and um for people who don't know you know the, the case itself uh, goes back to december 1980 the the final days of december 1980 um when there was multiple sightings of ufo activity in and around rendlesham forest which is this large area of forest um in in uh, in the south of uh, excuse me the the south part of Suffolk in England near the the coastline. Now the event itself involves sightings of strange balls of light, um, laser beam type beams uh, coming out of the sky. Um, some of the military personnel who were out there um, having um, missing time. So a lot of really weird stuff. And this the story was hidden for like four years and um, it was only because through the terms of the Freedom of Information Act that a document, a one-page document uh, prepared by, at the time, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt put together and then it sort of was just thrown into the public domain and um, and kind of like Roswell, you know, again like Ros- with Roswell, it's a situation where it's been going on for decades and everybody's got a theory and... Um, you know, everybody's got an idea as to what's going on. So the fact that it remained, I want to say, classified for years, does that lend help to its case or hurt this case? Oh, you broke up a little bit, then say that again. I said, does the fact that it remained quiet for so many years help this case or hurt this case? Oh, well, that's actually a, a really good question. Um, I think... In one sense, it's an important thing that the story didn't get out because it demonstrates that there were those people in government that specifically did not, you know, want it coming out. So that from their perspective, you know, that was a good thing. Um, The bad thing was that, you know, if only we could have been right on the story immediately, you know, if there was a UFO team... Um, out in Rendlesham Forest, like 24 hours after this happened, that would have been an incredible, you know, um, event, you know, where we could um, really be on top of it. Um, but, you know, the the most um, ideal scenario isn't always the one you get, you know. <laughs> um, so 
but, but I mean, you know, you can look at it from both perspectives, you know, really. So, um, you know, I think, um, I, I would say, again, I, I like with Roswell, I would say it's on a par with Roswell in terms of the large number of military personnel that were involved and the, you know, the the quick uh, clampdown, but also, you know, multiple different theories put in place to try and... Um, uh, kind of wash, if you like, um, the the real scenario. Yeah, I was going to say, so now that we've kind of laid that out, where does the conspiracy come into this mix? Well, um, well, the whole thing really was a controversy and a, and a conspiracy. Um, you know, the if it had just been, shall we say, strange lights in the sky, and that was about it, well, it would just be you know, I was just a weird event, and that was it. Um, the fact, though, that there were uh, multiple uh, military personnel, um, not over just one night, you know, we're talking about over three nights, and I mean, for the most part, that's not really what you get in most UFO events. I mean, things like Betty and Barney Hill, Roswell, Cash Landrum, um, all of these famous cases... They're pretty much all one-off events. Um, with um, Rendlesham, it was from the 26th, 27th through the 28th of December every night in the woods. And with rumours possibly on the 29th and the 30th as well, but in different parts uh, outside of Rendlesham Forest, maybe about sort of 15 miles away. So, you know, that, that um, kind of makes it unique as well and um you know there's so many different aspects i mean some people claim to have seen um sort of strange creatures in the woods sort of little humanoid figures with large eyes um as i said some had missing time um others um saw this strange fog in the woods like a glowing fog if you've seen the fog the movie you know it's literally somebody's described it as like looking like that so you know it's very much a unique kind of situation and um so there's there's so many ways you can go with this story you know in terms of not just the theories and the ideas but you can actually go with how and why this is you know is a really almost unique kind of situation yeah i was gonna say i mean over days always that's the part of this story that gets me because like you mentioned you listed off all those other things that are singular occurrences but this happened multiple days to multiple people and it kind of when you start putting the when you start putting the puzzle together it becomes more and more puzzling yeah i know that's bad um because it's not the same it's not the same thing and it's not the same place it's not it's just it blows my mind nick i'm sure it did to you too so what and then there's some, oh, what was the the, the guy's name? Um, oh, this is bad. I should write things down. Um, there was some controversy about his paperwork even that starts us all uh, because he wrote the wrong date or something. Oh, yeah, you're talking about Charles Holt. Uh, yes. At the time, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Charles Holt. Now, for people who don't know, and, and it's an important thing, um, the, the two bases that there's a there were two twin bases one was called royal air force bentwaters and the other one was royal air force woodbridge now they were both two uk bases because obviously they're in the uk however both bases at the height of the cold war had been um loaned over to the united states military uh, because you know this was the height of the cold war still 1980 and so the plan was to have as many military cases down excuse military bases down the east coast of england and if god forbid you know there, there was going to be a nuclear war um all of those missiles on the east coast you know that would be the prime um launch area to to sort of, you know, launch the missiles against Russia because, you know, it would be the East. Um, and so two of these bases, Rendlesham, excuse me, uh, Bentwaters and Woodbridge, were handed over to uh, the United States. And for many, many years, decades, in fact, 
there were thousands collectively um, military personnel from the US but stationed in the two UK bases and um, so it was down to Colonel um, Holt himself who was a, a US military officer and he's retired now but um, he talked about um, you know seeing all this weird phenomenon um, in the skies I said these balls of light these laser beams things like this however the the whole story and the memo that um, Lieutenant Colonel Holt put together didn't actually reach the British Ministry of Defence, which is the US, the UK equivalent of the Department of Defence here. Um, it took that long, you know, it took like almost 12 days, I think it was, um, for the story to reach the British Ministry of Defence. And of course, although they sent people out, um, the problem was, you know, after two weeks, the, the trail had pretty much gone apart from photographs and things like that and audio recordings, that the, the guys who were on the site on the very nights, apart from those, you know, it, the, the trail really was gone. And, and you know, some people have suggested that, um, you know, maybe the MOD possibly um, diverted the documents so they wouldn't see it um, you know, um, too soon and, um, you know, to allow them to, to hide what, what happened. So, you know, you put all that together, you've got a very significant story involving US, UK people um, in an area that was highly strategic in the event of the Cold War, if the Russians were going to launch. Um, and you put all that together, you know, and you're in a situation that is... I won't say a unique UFO event, but certainly, you know, a very strong one. So I'm going to ask this question because I don't know the answer, and this is going to probably be... I've been told before, don't ask questions I don't know the answer to, but we're just going to do it anyways. Um, how are we sure this isn't, wasn't some sort of military tactic to uh, confuse the Russians? Well, I mean... A number of theories have been put forward, and, you know, the Russian angle... There's actually several different theories for, you know, the idea that this could have been, a, you know, some sort of... something with, like, a Russian aspect to it. I mean, I don't, I don't personally buy into that. However, what I would say, some people do. For example, on the first night, um, there actually was a decaying Russian satellite in the sky. Um... Now, that is, you know, a lot of people don't know that, but um, what's particularly intriguing, though, is that, you know, if it was some kind of satellite or a Russian device, then coming into the Earth's atmosphere, it would slam into the ground. You know, it wouldn't just come down, you know, like a feather or anything like that. You know, I mean, a, a military satellite or any kind of satellite slamming into the ground from you know, Earth orbit would cause incredible damage, you know, to in Rendlesham Forest. I mean, the, you know, the, the forest floor would be just destroyed. And there's no way you could slow down, you know, um, a Russian satellite to like five miles an hour. I mean, it's just not feasible. Uh, so you have that theory. What Another theory was the idea of some kind of early Russian drone spying on some of the the UK bases and that went out of control and um, and crashed in the forest. So um, and you know different theories, like for example, a nuclear device uh, coming out of a you know a military uh, craft of some sort. Um, and of course, you know you've got the theory that's in my um, new book, the um, the Roswell UFO conspiracy, which looks at the idea of using. Um, experiments on military personnel to try and, um, if you like, create imageries and holograms, um, sophisticated holograms, to see if the, the human, how, to what extent the human mind um, could be um, significantly altered with the likes of psychedelics and holograms to, to basically to see if, you know, if the enemy could be deceived by, you know, an event or an incident or a craft. And um, in other words, to 
putting an experiment into place to see how the human mind, um, military personnel react in situations of a very alternative situation. That's that's scary to think about, but I know I mean I know it happens, but it's always it always gets me when we talk start talking about the government trying to alter people's minds. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just be honest, that's no no good. So you went through that. So what do you do? You think that's what it was, or what do you think? Where are you at? Well, I mean, you know, when this happened, um, nineteen eighty, to put it into perspective for you in relation to me, when this happened in December 1980 you know I was you know I wasn't ba- well, I was just barely in high school you know I was just a, I was a, just a kid you know when Rendlesham happened um, and so for that reason um, you know when I first got into it you know when you're sort of 12 13 something like that your first thought is wow you know this is a, a UFO event aliens came down because that's what the local and then the national newspapers said you know aliens land in Rendlesham Forest if you're 12 or 13 you listen to that and and you really listen to it now over the years between um, 1984 which is when the first book came out on the subject called Sky Crash and um, it was written by Dot Street um, Brenda Butler and Jenny Randalls and that's a really good book and I recommend that one as well as mine <laughs> but uh, I recommend Sky Crash as well because it was the very first um, book on Rendlesham 1984 uh, when it came out and the, the three ladies they did a really good job of investigating the case and they made friends um, with some of the personnel there and you know, my view was, well, it really was a UFO. And then, you know, as I said, there were these other theories like Russian satellites and um, drones, that kind of thing. But the more and more that I dug into it, the more and more I became suspicious over the UFO angle. And I'll and I'll explain why. One is the the issue of uh, Rendlesham Forest itself. Now. Rendlesham Forest is, it's a large forest, and it's on the east coast of England. It's easy to see on a map, uh, not too far from the city of Ipswich. Now, what a lot of people don't know, and this is one of the most important things, and I, I, which I stressed in the book, um, is that since the 1930s, Rendlesham Forest has been a hotbed of top-secret British military experimentation for decades. For example, um, there's a place um, in in the south part of England, just on the fringes of Rendlesham Forest, um, where the first experiments into early radar was undertaken just on the fringes of the forest. And this was run by a top-secret program called the Tizard Committee, and they were the guys who started to do the research into radar. Now, in the second, that was the 1930s. Now, in the 1940s, at the height of the Second World War, um, a contingent of German personnel, military personnel, tried to invade the east coast of England um, uh, late one night. And the reason why was because the UK, being an island, the Germans never actually managed to invade the UK because, you know, just surrounded by water. It's an island. Um, however, there were rumours of an experiment where the British military had developed a device where they could, kind of like um, a flare device um, that would you, you sort of directed at people and it would set them on fire. And there were rumours that this experiment occurred um, on the coast at the height of the Second World War. Then, in the 1960s, there was another top-secret um, project put together um, called Cobra Mist, which, again, was a highly classified radar program. And British Telecom, which is a communication company in the UK, um, they were working um, on multiple top-secret programs. Now, what's interesting about the Tizard Committee 
this experiment to sort of set people on fire on the battlefield, um, Cobra Mist and these other experiments, all of them were undertaken within seven miles of Rendlesham Forest. So, you know, I say to people, what's the likelihood that a UFO came down in 1980 in the same area where five other top-secret military experiments went down as well from the 1930s through to the latter part of the 70s. You know, is that just coincidence, or was Rendlesham just another one of these um, experiments in Rendlesham Forest again? A lot of people just don't know about the sheer number of experiments that went on in and around Rendlesham from 1930, no, excuse me, 33, right up until um, the part, the last part of the 1970s. Then it went quiet for a year or so, and then suddenly Rendlesham, the UFO event, pops up. I was going to say, that's quite the history of uh, unusual and unexplained events, or kind of explained events, but still. For one particular place or area, that seems to be a concentration. It's interesting. Mm. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. Um, well, go ahead. Go ahead. Go no, go, go, go. No, I was just going to say everything's kind of interesting about <laughs> Rendlesham. Now, one of the other interesting angles is that um, on the, the the night before this is where it gets really interesting. The night before the event. Now. When I say before events, you know, well, people might think, well, how on earth can you sort of, you know, plan for when a UFO is going to land? You know, that's something that most people cannot do. You know, <laughs> I don't really know anyone who, for the most part, has had a UFO event where they knew it was going to happen before it really did. Uh, but that's what happened in, in regards to Rendlesham Forest. For example... Um, one of the big rumours was that on the on the late afternoon of the first night, there were rumours that um, a team of scientists came into um, Rendlesham Forest. Now, bear in mind the time. This was December 1980 in the UK. And uh, that time of year, um, the nights get really dark. You know, we talk about 430 and there were rumours that a team of military and scientific personnel came into the stealth, very stealthily, came into the woods and, um, and just basically waited because supposedly another team was coming to the woods as well. And as I said, this was a night before the initial incidents and reportedly this team came from a, uh, a facility in the southwest of England called Porton Down. And Porton Down is um, a top-secret facility in the southwest of England where a lot of research is done on things like LSD, other hallucinogens, um, chemical warfare, biological warfare, bacteri bacteriological warfare, things like that. Now, there is a precedent to this. In the early 1960s, the UK military ran a top-secret program and they dosed um, a, a one particular unit of military personnel in an area of forest um, with LSD. And the whole point was, could we actually kind of um, alter the mindset um, of the, the military personnel by sort of hitting them with psychedelics, um, possibly in sort of using an aerosol-type fashion? And the... The one long-standing theory, or not so much a theory, but the rumour that was going around, was that the US personnel who went out into the woods on that first night, that some of them at least were dosed with hallucinogens. Um, and again, you know, you sort of mix that with um, holograms and hallucinogens, and that the the higher-ups, if you like, you know, the generals, colonels, etc., sat back and watched to see what the response of the military personnel was. In other words, if we could make our guys think 
we, they can see UFOs and aliens, then we could sure as hell could do exactly the same on the Russians. So that's, that's the sort of scenario that, you know, I'm sort of focusing on is the idea of something like, but not too dissimilar from the, from the 1950s with the whole CIA, MK Ultra programs and trying to find ways to affect the human mind and like I said, if you can make people see UFOs, you can definitely make them see anything. And on the battlefield, you know, when the enemy's coming towards you and they suddenly see th something totally unforeseen from their perspective, then, you know, how, how would that have an effect on, you know, the, the enemy? And, um, and there's a lot of data in support of that scenario, um, sort of the you know, the military personnel being victims of a mind control operation, really. Yeah, I said you're thinking little UFOs or aliens or anything like that, but even some of the wild creatures I've heard about, like pink elephants. Of course, pink elephants <laughs> lead me to Pink Floyd, which <laughs> will get a little loopy and, and play some Pink Floyd. I don't think there'll be any war anywhere anytime soon. Um, <laughs> that's bad. Anyways, so I guess my next... my my kind of twist on the next level thinking about this stuff is there's been a lot of books and um, content put out about this, but as you went through it, what's kind of, there's always kind of the thing that snowballs that really has no truth to it. What, what was that for this? What's that with the Rendlesham forest? It, it, what perspective? Senator? Well, the what? kind of like the thing that somebody kind of twisted or made up and it just kind of became part of the story, even though, the original research doesn't show anything about it. I'm I'm sure there's something out there that I'm missing. I don't know off the top of my head, because I haven't done enough research into Rendlesham to know this, but I think there's got to be something out there that's a great myth or misconception about it. You mean a misconception into the what actually happened? Yeah. Well, oh, well, yeah. I mean, I mean, the guys who are out there, you know, on the first night, I mean, there's no doubt in their mind that, that what they saw were UFOs because they described seeing these balls of light um, they saw these weird kind of light, red laser beams going up from the, the ground to the sky and actually Colonel Holt in his memo talks about this um, laser beam light um, but what's interesting one of the things I also talk about in the book is that I undercovered um, some documents uh, through the Freedom Information Act, and um, they talk about how experiments had been um, sort of been put into place just a few years earlier to try and control what's known as ball lightning. Now, ball lightning is a, a form of regular lightning. However, it takes on the form of like a, like a globe, a spherical shape, and the military was planning on ways to use ball lightning as a weapon on the battlefield. You know, if you've got this huge ball, like the size of, like, a beach ball, um, and um, a, a ball lightning, and you have the ability to aim it at the enemy, you know, you could cause all sorts of havoc. Now, th that is not rumour or, you know, friend of a friend tales. As I said, that document, um, which is called the Kugelblitz document, um... And if you read the document, which has been declassified now, it talks about using ball lightning as a weapon, and they were testing it in the United States as well, in forested areas. Um, so, but for the guys who were out there, they would have no sort of real comprehension of what, um, you know, ball lightning was. Rather, they saw a strange... Um, sort of a globular type um, thing in the sky and perceived it as a UFO and I think that's probably the goal that the you know the guys in charge and watching over the program that's exactly what they wanted you know to see how it affected people and what they perceived it to be um, but then you know as the as the days and months and even the years went along and different theories came along. Um, you know, everybody had their own scenario, kind of like with Roswell, you know. I mean, the Air Force itself changed its 
uh, mind on Roswell, uh, Roswell three times. First they said a flying disc, then it was a weather balloon, then it was um, a spy balloon called a, a mogul balloon, and then after that, you know, they said, well, there were no bodies in the in the balloons, and then after that they said in 1997, well, there were bodies, but they were crash test dummies. So, <laughs> you know, even the, the military you know, has come up with different scenarios. And I think that's probably because, not because they're lying, but because they were out of the loop. And I think that is probably the case, you know, that that most of the the people who were involved um, just did not know what was going on. You know, most of the guys in Randlesham Forest, that the reason why they went out there was because they saw weird lights in the sky and they got permission from there um so that the you know the higher up guys can we go out and see what it is we're seeing these lights now one of the theories is that they were sort of you know it was like um reeling in a fish you know that they were being reeled in you know but it was in, it was a case of being reeled out you know out into the forest and um in other words they were being used as the um, you know the ones that would be kind of like the patsy, so to speak, and you know they were lured out there into the woods, and then suddenly all of the activity began, um, and they may have perceived it as something else, and somebody as somebody as something else. So, um, but again, I think that's part of what they wanted. You know, it, it was to see how easy, you know confusion could be put into place and um and if you if you've just got five or ten minutes to confuse the energy you know the enemy well that really gives you a chance to make you know a really good advance over the enemy yeah it doesn't take much when you're uh, in war to make the world a difference i've got a listener question here i'm going to kind of reword it so um, given the recent controversy over the witnesses of the event, do you believe that the truth is out there, or are we starting to get the waters muddied, or how do you feel about the witnesses to all of this? Oh, well, I mean, you know, given the time frame, you know, there's no doubt that the time frame, like any classic case, you know, is it's getting more and more problematic in terms of how do we solve this? I mean, like any any case that's sort of getting up in years now, um, you know, I, I would say it's problematic because if you think about it, Rendlesham is 40 years ago. Um, now, if you look at it from that perspective, some of the guys who were in Rendlesham Forest on that night, you know, they're only like 21, 22 but if you put it in perspective, that means now they're like 62. You know, and there's a huge difference between being 22 and being 62. Um, and so the way I look at it is is like this, that the further, you know, it goes you know, further into time, you know, there's, there's the inevitably issue of death, you know, without being, you know, being grim about it. But I mean, you know, some of them are now in their 60s. Some of them, the older personnel, are now in their 70s. You know, back then in 1980, they were in their early 30s. So that's that's an important angle. Um, but the other angle, of course, you know, with the um, sort of disappearance of time is the fact that the you know the number of documents official documents that have surfaced are so small um that we don't really have any much in the way of official documentation now had we known exactly at the time when all this happened maybe using the freedom information act things like that maybe we could have prized open the story when it really broke open and everything was in chaos and maybe there was a lot of nobody knows what's going on and people make mistakes and you know things come out um but i think you know the other angle is that 40 years later yes you can look at it from a, you know a good perspective um and look back at it but 
trying to figure it out, you know, after four decades, um, I think one of the biggest problems would be um, how do you try and find a way to get the documents that clearly would have been put into place. You know, if you are, whether it's a UFO event, a Russian event, or a holograph-type event, there are, there is going to be, you know, a Rendlesham file on whichever event is the real one. It's probably going to run into hundreds of pages, you know. But the, the older those files are, the easier it is to keep hiding them, you know, ahead of this person or that somebody in the media or a ufo researcher so um you know there's a lot of things against us however you know i mean the more we dig and dig we still have a chance to solve it uh, as i said a lot of the guys are in the 70s now but with roswell just about almost every single person is gone um most of the Rendlesham ones are not gone. They're nearly all alive, but they are getting up in those years now, you know, so we do really need to, you know, for those who want to talk, we really need to do it now. So my question is, could this happen today? I mean, with all the advent of social media, could, could we keep a secret like this today? I guess is the question. Well... I think we could, but this might sound a bit strange, but the the point, as I look at is, do we actually need to do it again? I mean, you know, if the guys were out in the woods and there was a team of, um, you know, the, the guys uh, above them in rank um, sort of sat back and watched and the guys, you know, the, the victims, so to speak, um, could it be done again? Yes, it could. But if you did, if, let's say, and this, you know, a lot of people don't know also that there may have been two other experiments uh, or events um, around two or three days after the, the more famous one. However, if, you know, there was a team out there making notes and putting a, a file together of dozens of pages and explaining why it worked really well, um, would they actually even need to do it again? You know, they they may not to. They they got all the technology, the hallucinogens, the holographs, and it worked really well. Maybe they didn't feel that there was a need to do it again because it worked perfectly the first time. Um, now, when you, in theory, you know, could it be done again? Well, my view is whether a hologram, a Russian craft, um, a UFO, we, the fact is... You know, it was hidden for four years, 1980 through 1984, when the uh, British press broke the story. Um, so if it could be hidden um, back then, you know, in 1980, I see no reason really why it couldn't be done now. I mean, Rendlesham Forest, you know, it's not like it's surrounded like by a big city or a giant town. It's little tiny villages, you know, like typical little English villages, you know, um, dotted around here, there, and everywhere, and um, a large forest in an area which is, you know, gets very dark early at night, etc., etc. Um, I think really it could be achieved quite easily. I think it's an interesting thought, though, because I mean, I, I think people are so much more willing to talk today than they were twenty, forty years ago. But that's just me. Um, what was I going to I was going to ask you something else. I just totally left my mm -hmm. mind with that. Uh, so let's go to this other chatter question here. Given the strange re the strange creatures reported at the event, do you think they're the same uh, creatures now appearing at Bemington? Be yeah, Bem. Yeah, sorry. What you mean, like at other places as well? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, this is where things get complicated because you know if you look at the extent, you know, that our technology grows now, it's going to become, I think, not so much difficult to hide these events, but I think it could get very difficult to understand, um, you know, the, or differentiate between a real UFO and something that's 
something highly advanced of ours. I mean, for example, you know, everybody's seen uh, drones today, you know, and um, a lot of people own drones. Now, if you saw, you know, a highly advanced drone, you know, sold at a particular store in, I don't know, 2016, if you saw that come down, let's say, 1978, late at night, you would swear you'd probably seen a UFO. So I think one of the big problems, you know, of trying to figure out something that's, quote, theirs or ours, you know, <laughs> um, that, that that is a problem. It's not an easier thing, I think, to do today, you know, to to resolve what's this or what's that. Um, so I think when it comes to experiments versus UFOs, um, it's not an easy thing to do but of course one of the big issues as well is that people people don't like their classic cases to be touched you know they don't like that people want the classic cases to remain classic cases but for me you know i can only tell people what i think is the truth and if people agree with me that's fine and if they like what i've said that's fine and if they don't well that's how it goes you know <laughs> um you know I, d I don't lose sleep over upsetting people if they think they disagree with me or vice versa you know i can only do what i can do which is to put the story out put all the data i've put out and share it for people um but you know I think very often within ufology there is the X-Files I want to believe factor, which I understand, you know. Um, for me, the big irony is I wish Rendlesham really was a UFO event because that would be, that would prove to all of us that there really are aliens. But, but in all honesty, I don't think Rendlesham is, or was, I should say, a UFO event but I think it was meant to look like a UFO event. I feel personally attacked right now, Nick. I'm sitting here staring at a, a UFO poster that says, I want to believe. Of course, it's fell off the wall several times. It's got big creases in it. But <laughs> no, it's a, good re it's a good reminder to me that well, I still want, I mean, I, I want to believe that. I, God, I hope we're not the smartest things ever anywhere in the universe. So, you know. I feel I feel bad if that's the case because we're kind of messing up this planet in a good way or a bad way I guess to be honest. But okay, so I got two. Well, I've got two really good UFO questions left, and then I've got a few other fun things just kind of round out the hour. Um, can we have a UFO sighting today without somebody instantly saying it was just a drone? Well, I mean, I, I mean, when I was yeah, I don't think we can make like a black and white situation between drones and um, UFOs, or let's say some new type of super silent helicopter and, um, you know, a, a UFO as well. I don't think we can differentiate to that degree, you know, sort of it's black or white or whatever. Um, but what I do think is that, um, you know, as time goes along, um, things do change you know science changes technology changes craft changes or change i should say um and you know we i'd hate to say you know we're in the position 30 years now from now um in the same position as roswell now you know or it turns up like um a jack the ripper type style story you know an old mystery about this guy who killed all these women and then but we just never get the answer because it's too far you know back in the past anything like that i think could happen um but i don't know i mean um but but like i said the big irony is i i actually do wish it was a ufo event i mean that would be great we only need what a lot of people, you know, may forget that we don't need, you know, um, just, you know, dozens of cases to make to make a case. What we actually need is one really good case. And if we were to find that, well, we've won, you know. Um, 
But to be honest, um, you know, people wouldn't want me to lie. Um, you know, I, the way I look at it is the perspective as I see it is that at least some UFO events, um, maybe even some famous ones beyond Rendlesham, have been used in sort of mind-altering experiments um, and to try and keep the media and, you know, the public and everybody else away is to hide it under something more mundane. It's a helicopter, it's a drone, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to say, it's easier to, to brush it off as something some people understand. I guess that kind of leads me to this other UFO question, and I have another good chatter question that I have to ask, because I don't have a clue. Again, I'm going to ask a question I don't know the answer to, but I'm going to ask my question first. It's about, um, because the government has tried to hide these things, do you think they'll ever, I, I hate the word disclosure, because I think we've kind of already come to the conclusions we're going to come to, and it seems to be dripping out more and more with all these different things, but... Are we ever going to actually know, or are we just going to kind of keep bending forward until, we're, well, we're probably going to be gone, and then it'll all come out? Well, it's hard to say in some respects. Um, now, if you look into some of the earlier books, uh, I actually wrote about this once. Um, back in the 1950s, Donald Kehoe, one of the early ufologists um he said in the 50s he'd heard from the pentagon that the government was going to release the truth um and in the 70s as well there were similar um claims that um the government was going to come forward uh the same thing happened when in 1987 the majestic 12 documents came out um you know this is going to be the first step in the you know the process of disclosure so you know maybe it is coming but it also i kind of look at it also as well as the um you know like the guy who the like the, the boy who uh, was it quite uh, cried wolf you know and eventually nobody listened to him because it was just you know a fake um so i think um disclosure could come However, I think if it does, it's because the government wants its own, owns, its own um, um, approach, if you like. I don't think if disclosure will come just because the government thinks, oh, well, we'll tell them because it's a nice thing to do. You know, I don't <laughs> think it's be anything like that. What I think is that there will only be disclosure if it helps the... Um, the stance, if you like, of the government. You know, if, it, if there's no reason for the government to tell us, they won't tell us. If there's some sort of impact from a positive from their perspective, well, okay, let's do it and finally tell them. But, um, you know, it, it's hard to say, really. Um, you know, um, I would like it to happen, but I wonder again, you know, will it be disclosure for the sake of disclosure or will it be disclosure for an agenda yeah at least anytime the government gives us something you know there's something else to it it's never just oh here you go so anyways before i get myself in trouble into that i've got this uh, listener question here if it was a hologram then do you believe that Plodrick Bluebeam will also take place within six to 36 months what about 36 months if if this was a hologram then do you believe that project blue beam will also take place oh well blue beam you know is kind of like um another example um i mean the the, the one thing about blue beam that i have my um doubts about is that you know this is it's a story but you know, I haven't really heard any solid data of people who've come forward. You know, um, this person, John Smith, Bill Jones, were there. They were part of the experiment. You know, everybody's heard of Bluebeam, but nobody's really heard of the people involved. 
um, Wales Road Rendlesham, which is a very similar scenario, albeit, you know, a plan on a smaller scale. But there were dozens of people whose names came forward, you know. Um, so, you know, Bluebeam is a classic example, but it's but it's lacking in, you know, first-hand witnesses, which Rendlesham isn't. So, okay, we've danced around the book all night, so give me the hard, you know what I'm asking for here, the, the promo for the book and where people can find it and all that good stuff. Well, yeah, the book's called um, The uh, Rendlesham Forest UFO Conspiracy, and, um, and it's a study of Rendlesham Forest, the UFO event, from a very different angle, that of a secret experiment using holograms, hallucinogens, exposing military personnel to see how the human mind could be affected, and, um, and it's available um, in Amazon, uh, on Amazon, I should say, and you can also uh, buy it off the shelves in Barnes & Noble for people who uh, still actually walk into uh, <laughs> bookstores, so, uh, and... Um, People ever you know want to talk to me? Um, reach me at Facebook um, and also at my blog, which is called World of Whatever. Uh, just look for Nick Redfern, World of Whatever. That's the title of my blog, and um, you can reach me there. And anybody wants to uh, ask questions or want any advice, etc. Um, always happy to chat. So I, I've got to ask. Nick Redfern is always working on a on a book or two. So what are you working on now? Um, well, I've got one coming out, I think, I, I actually don't have the exact date, yes, but um, it'll be round about May, and it's going to be called the uh, the Time Travel Book, so it'll be like an A to Z of everything to do with um, time travel. Well, I've already read it, it was a good book. Oh, that's a bad time travel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'll get a lot like that, a lot of jokes like that when it comes out. <laughs> that's a good uh, one <laughs> I, I'm sorry I know you're probably going to hear that a lot but I just had to because it was just right there uh, as long as they talk about it <laughs> um, that had to be fun though because there's a lot of different fa aspects to that and I don't want to get too far into that but that had to be a different uh, thing for you because you spent a lot of time in the UFO stuff so it had to be good to get out and do something a little, little bit different So, okay, so I normally like to ask, uh, last time we talked, I think it was last time we talked, we talked about speaking at events. I know we did this at one point. And so how different has it been not being able to go out and do those events? And not, you know... Well, um, well, yeah, I mean, you know, when I guess the whole picture really started to take off, you know, that people have got to stay inside and masks and um, conferences and lectures are being cancelled and, you know, TV companies are frightened to um, take um, interviewees in case they get sick and, you know, then they sue the, um, the TV companies, which is one of the big um, worries of a lot of the TV shows that make, like paranormal shows, they're worried to take people to their studios and tell you that with a hundred percent certainty um but i guess the big difference is like in in any job in life you know things change you have to um you have to sort of mold your life you know and um and do what you have to do i mean right now you know um conferences lectures tv pretty much have gone, you know, and apart from all of these recycled shows, you know, you get to see on some of the channels, um, you have to adapt. It's like anything in life, you adapt or you die, you know. Yeah, it's it's interesting to think about, though, especially all these shows that, man, what's the next big wave of paranormal TV shows when we get back to doing them? I've lost count where we're at. Is it is it we're back to cryptids or are we back in the UFOs? I'm not sure. Well, well I mean, it may not change too much because one of the things um, which I just briefly touched on, a lot of the all these channels which are rerunning, um, you know, all their shows that were filmed like a year ago and they're rerunning them again right now, you know. 
in other words, those subjects haven't gone away. It's just the it's just the recycled same one. So it may be that people still say familiar with the same stuff: cryptozoology, ufology, and ghost hunting. They are the sort of the three primary ones. But I mean, but yeah, I mean, for me, you know, um, before you know, I do fifty percent of my you know um, work would be conferences and lectures and 50 would be being at home writing books now it's pretty much 100 percent writing books at home um you know but i'm still doing the same things but there's just a lesser amount of this or that really and for those of you out there listening, this is probably Nick's third or fourth appearance on the program. And I remember, I distinctly remember we dug into writing after we talked about a book for a while, and then we talked about writing, and then we talked about being a public speaker. And tonight we're just kind of um, filling in the gaps of how the world has changed in those realms. So if you're interested in those great conversations we've had, of course they were great conversations because Nick's here. And uh, if you just enjoyed this one, there's there's other shows that you can go listen to and get more information about other stuff that he's wrote, too. So dig through, type Nick Redfern in Google there, and you'll find my show, and you'll find some other great stuff that he's done off us. So I had to say that because I know we've dug through a no, lot well, of different things. I know we've, we've no, done well, some great things. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, everything's a little bit sort of... Um, unknown you know and unforeseen and um we got to do what we got to do but i think you know there's there's still ways you know to do research and you know find information and track down old timers who might be able to you know share information that um somebody else hasn't found i mean um you know there's no reason why that should go away um i guess for most people though you know it is it is one of these situations where all of us, to a degree, psychologically, you know, you you kind of suffer in these situations, um, you know, in varying ways. Some people just lose it. Other people have a bit of depression. Somebody else, you know, that kind of thing. But um, I guess we just got to do what we got to do. So. I think, I think it, at least for me, maybe this is my perspective, maybe you'll have a totally different one on this. My perspective is I thought we were all connected and doing well because of the Internet, right? And then I realized that that really isn't true. We are great and connected on the Internet, but we still have this great human connection that we all value more than we realize. And I think this, hopefully, will wake people up and reinforce the actual value of actual human connection, and we'll be better off for it. Well, yeah, yeah, and I think, you know... Um you know, if we could all kind of just get together and, um, you know, go back to how things were. Well, I don't know if they'll ever be as they were, period, you know. But, um, I don't know, it's it's all very up in the air, you know. Um, but, well, come on, Nick, you're from the future. You, you just told me you were a time traveler from the future. You should know these. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean... Um, I, th- I think the, I think the best thing I could, pro- or the, from my perspective, is, you know, like I said, it is to kind of, you know, sort of change and do what you have to do because the worst thing you can do is sort of sit in the corner, panicking. Oh, what can we do? Well, you have to get up and do something to get your life in into you know place as as best as you can nick no i hate point. to do this to you i hate to do this to you but we're out of time man thanks thanks for joining me all right good thanks night. for having me on the show and um yeah we covered a lot of ground things. thank you for listening to this episode of the mail report stay tuned for so, details on saving money at the duck pond shop i hope you enjoyed this report please subscribe so that you can join us again and if you appreciate the show leave us some stars or a review for more notes from this show or other great shows, check out Mallard.com. A reminder, the views and opinions of the show are those of the host and guests and do not represent any sponsors, affiliates, or any other partners of the Mallard Report. Now for your money-saving tip. Promo code Mallard at checkout of DuckPondShop.com, where you can get your t-shirt, coffee mug, and other great products. That's promo code Mallard at checkout, DuckPondShop.com. Until next week, stay safe and keep whacking.
Hello everyone, my name is Tom Kearns and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.